Will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 9? And we want everybody to be able to follow along so the fellows have some Bibles. So get their attention, they'll get one to you, so that you can see where we're speaking from in Hebrews 9. We also have an outline for you to follow along that's inserted in your program. I encourage you to use that as we look at God's Word together. This is the last message that we will have in the book of Hebrews until January 31. And that's because, as I mentioned in our announcements, missionary Joel Compton will be with us next week. He'll be preaching during this hour. And then two weeks from today and the following week, the 20th and the 27th, I'm going to do two messages from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And on the 27th, that is actually going to be our Christmas message And if you don't know how that fits with a Christmas message, come, and I trust you will see at that time. And then for the first two weeks of January, the 3rd and the 10th, we'll have two messages from the small book of Jonah in your Old Testament. The reason is that Jonah is really the Old Testament older brother in the prodigal parable, and we'll see that together. And then I will be in India with our missionary Daniel Kumar, teaching at the Bible school that he has there on the 17th and 24th, and then I'll be back on the 31st, and we'll resume our time in the book of Hebrews. So today is the last message until that time, Hebrews chapter 9. And I choose to preach the series that I do based upon what I think our church needs at any given time. I've wanted our young congregation a congregation that's relatively young as a church. We have many who are young in the Lord. I wanted all of us to have a full appreciation of who Jesus Christ is. And so if you've been with us for a few years, you know that. We spent a good deal of time in the Gospel of John, and the title of that series was Meet Your Maker. Meet Jesus Christ in the pages of that book, Our Maker. And now the book of Hebrews which is designed to show the superiority of Jesus Christ to everyone and everything. And I chose to do a series on the book of Hebrews in part because I thought we would benefit from seeing how the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, fits with the second part, the New Testament. The Old Testament is foundational to our understanding of what we're taught in the New. And yet many of us, truth be told, don't know much about that first part. Hebrews enables us to get to know the Old Testament just a bit. Because Hebrews, having been written to Jewish Christians, and thus the name Hebrews, is based on teachings from the Old Testament as it shows that Jesus fulfilled what the first part of your Bible anticipated, and that he's superior to all that had gone before and any who would come after. This book makes reference to the Old Testament priesthood. And it shows that our high priest Jesus is superior to any priest who has gone before him. And that his work is so complete that it does away with the need for any priest on earth today. Beginning in chapter 8 of Hebrews, the subject of the new covenant, the new arrangement that Jesus began, And how it is superior to the old covenant in the first part of your Bible. The old arrangement that came through Moses is undertaken. We saw last week that Jesus' new arrangement can accomplish what Moses' old arrangement 
could not. Today in chapter 9, we're going to see a third important feature of the life of life in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills and even surpasses. And so he's superior to the priesthood in the first part of your Bible and the covenant given in the first part of your Bible. And the third thing he's superior to, fulfills and surpasses, is in his sacrifice. Because in that first part of your Bible, you find over and over and over an elaborate sacrificial system, all of which pointed to Jesus, and he fulfills it and surpasses it in its completeness and its endurance. The idea and practice of sacrifice is central to the old covenant that God gave to Moses. It was the means by which sins were covered and by which those who believed God's promises and obeyed his requirements would pursue their relationship with him. But those sacrifices of animals for sin, as we're going to see, they could never take away sin completely. They were temporary and partial. But Jesus' sacrifice of himself is eternal and complete. What those sacrifices could only do symbolically, Jesus accomplished in reality. They could not pay the price for the sin that they sought to cover. But notice in the words of the take-home truth in your outline. Those sacrifices could not pay the price for the sin they sought to cover, but Jesus has paid the price for our sin. A price that is infinitely high. Let's ask his blessing as we approach God's word together. Father, we thank you for the words of this marvelous book that remind us of the superiority of Jesus to everyone and everything that has gone before, is now, or is to come. We thank you for our high priest, Jesus. We thank you for the new arrangement, the new covenant that he inaugurated. And we thank you for the complete and eternal, infinite sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Help us as we're reminded from your word to leave this place with greater appreciation for what Christ has done on our behalf. May no one leave this place today having not applied, appropriated the gift that Jesus offers in the sacrifice of himself to themselves personally. We pray in his name. Amen. I want you to note that beginning in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9, we say in your outline that Jesus provides a complete forgiveness. Verse 15. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus offers a complete forgiveness, and that verse tells us that that forgiveness is so complete that it's even retroactive. That it goes back hundreds of years to cover the sins committed by those who were under the first arrangement in the first part of your body. And the reason the author of Hebrews addresses that is because one important question that one who knew the Old Testament would have about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is this. What about all those sacrifices for hundreds of years? What did they accomplish? Did they not accomplish anything? 
And so the writer of Hebrews takes that on and he says that the sins committed under the first covenant still needed to be paid for. Verse 15 uses the word ransom, a payment, still needed to be made for those sins that were committed prior to the death of Jesus. And the blood of animals could not take that sin ultimately away. Just hold your finger here and just turn over to chapter 10, the next chapter. Right at the very beginning, the first four verses tell us that very thing. Chapter 10 and verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Verse 3, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the writer is explicit. Those sacrifices could not ultimately fully take away sins. And so what did these sacrifices accomplish? And how are they related to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus? The passage says year after year. An annual reminder. Now why does it say year after year? There were sacrifices in between. Why annual? Because the big day for sacrifice in the nation of Israel was, of course, the most holy day among God's people. Once a year, the Day of Atonement. As we think about those sacrifices, necessary at the time, but which could never take away sin, given on that annual Day of Atonement and the relationship to Jesus. Let me try to explain that. On the Day of Atonement, the nation's sins were covered by blood, but only until the next Day of Atonement, when those accumulated sins had to be covered again. We might compare the Day of Atonement to a note of indebtedness. That note fell due each year. And because the debtors were unable to pay, they asked for an extension of their indebtedness for another 12 months. And in the same way, the sins of the nation would accumulate year after year. And that day of atonement did not retire the debt. It only forestalled the collection for another year. But then Jesus Christ came. So that by his death, he might make payment in full of those accumulated transgressions. And that's what the Bible affirms in Romans chapter 3, where in speaking of Christ, it says this. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, they were punished in the animals, bulls and goats, but never fully punished and finally punished and completely punished until Jesus came. And so those who came before the sacrifice of Jesus had their sins forgiven on credit, as it were, looking forward to a final payment that would be made in the sacrifice of the one to come, the Messiah that we know as Jesus Christ. And just as a picture of that actually taking place, there's just a couple of verses in 
Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Jesus that are often overlooked. But Matthew tells us that as Jesus was on the cross, dying to pay the sins of all mankind in full, completely, that the blood of bulls and goats could never do, that the, the veil, the curtain that separated men from the holy place where God was thought to dwell was torn in two, signifying now that there was access that there had not been in the past. But then the Bible also tells us this, the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. As a down payment, as an indication of the fact that Jesus' sacrifice has now completed what those sacrifices in the past could only point toward. Some, many, who had died before under the old covenant were, were raised to life as Jesus hung upon the cross. The forgiveness that Jesus gives is complete. It's retroactive. But it's also proactive. It not only applies to the past, but it applies to the future as well. If we simply said that the forgiveness that Jesus' sacrifice provides is in the past, most people would say, I get that. I mean, that's what most religions and many versions of Christianity believe. That Jesus' sacrifice pays for what you've done in the past. Ah, but going forward, we'll see. We'll see how it works out. We'll see whether or not you're a good enough boy or girl. And he's making a list, and he's checking it twice. And so the sacrifice of Jesus pays for sins in the past, but going forward. Ah, but the Bible teaches. Jesus' sacrifice is so complete that it pays for our sin not only in the past, but in the present and in the future as well. What a marvelous and mind-boggling thing to consider. But think about it. All of the sins of those who had gone before Jesus, who had lived before Jesus, all of their sins were past when Jesus died. And all of your sins were yet future when Jesus died. And his sacrifice covers their sins in the past, retroactive, and it covers your sins in the future. And even when you come to Jesus Christ, placing your faith in Him, yes, your sins in the past are forgiven, but the Bible teaches your sins in the future are forgiven as well. And that's why verse 15 says this. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. What those who come to Jesus receive is... Not just an inheritance, but an inheritance that, that lasts forever. And it begins at the point that one comes to receive it. An eternal inheritance. And therefore must encompass all of the sins that I may commit going forward. When you come to Christ and you receive Him as Savior, the payment that He made on the cross is applied to you and He guarantees eternal life to you. This means that he must forgive not only your sins in the past, but in the future as well. For if any sin were not covered and forgiven, you would not be assured of eternal life in heaven. 
Friends, that's the great difference between biblical Christianity and the good news of the gospel and all counterfeits. And make no mistake, there are many counterfeits. Such that the good news that is designed to proclaim that Jesus' sacrifice has covered all our sins, past, present, and future, becomes a truncated good news, covering only part of your sins, and then we'll see how well you do going forward. That is not what the Scriptures teach about the good news of the Gospel. The good news of the Gospel is that Christ forgives our sins, past and present, and praise be to God, and future. And it means there are no religious hoops to jump through to see if you'll make it. At the moment one comes to Christ, His infinite sacrifice is applied and covers all you've done or will do. That's why the Bible says this. God made us alive with Christ. And He forgave us all our sins. And in speaking of the truth of the gospel in Romans chapter 4, the Bible says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus provides a complete forgiveness, a retroactive forgiveness, and a proactive forgiveness going forward. It's not just a complete forgiveness. The Bible tells us it's also a costly forgiveness. Notice in verses 16 and 17, a costly forgiveness. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is enforced only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. What that passage is saying is in order for this new arrangement, this new covenant, to be inaugurated, to be initiated, to be put in force, it requires the death of the one who gives the new arrangement. The forgiveness that Jesus gives is costly in that it required his death on our behalf. Now, the word that's translated as a covenant, as a will, excuse me, in verse 16, in the case of a will, and then verse 17, because a will is enforced only when somebody has died, the word that's translated will is the same Greek word in your New Testament that's translated covenant elsewhere. And so why do the translators translate it will here, but covenant every place else? Well, here's why. Because the context of those verses describe the activity of, the giving of, and execution of a will, requiring the death of the one who has has given it. And in the time of the New Testament, this word that's often translated in your New Testament covenant was used of a will, just as we would think of a will. And so you put this document together, a will and testament, You are the one who initiates it, and then someone has to be the guarantor of the will. But the will is not executed until the death of the one who who gave it. It was true in New Testament times as well, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is now saying about the covenant that Jesus gave. 
He gives us this will, but in order for the will to be executed, there must be the death of the one who initiated. To be sure, during the lifetime of the one who gave the will, the terms can be changed, but it's not put into effect until the time of death. Now, why? Why does this new covenant require the death of the one who gave it? Because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And friends, as we think about the marvelous news of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, we should rejoice in that, but at the same time, it should cause our minds to think about the heinousness of our own sin. That's why one songwriter has said, every evil thought, every bitter thought, every evil deed, when Jesus died, was given on his thorn-crowned brow. It's a costly forgiveness requiring the death of the one who initiates the new arrangement. And because the new covenant was costly, the forgiveness that it brings to us is costly. Think of it this way. A son or a daughter may go wrong and a father or a mother may forgive. But that forgiveness brings tears. It brings whiteness to the hair, lines to the face, an anguish, and then a long ache to the heart. It does not, that forgiveness cost nothing. Human forgiveness is costly. Divine forgiveness is costly. God is love, but God is also holiness. And God cannot break the great moral laws of the universe that rest upon His very character. Sin must have its punishment or the very structure of the moral universe disintegrates. And God alone can pay the terrible price that's necessary before we can be forgiven. Forgiveness is never just a case of saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. Forgiveness always has a cost, and an extremely high cost, because it requires death. And as we think about the death of Jesus, we must also have our thoughts then turn to the depth of our sin. My sin and your sin required that payment in order for us to be right with God. Jesus provides costly forgiveness, and it's costly because that forgiveness requires death. But it also requires not just any sort of death, but it requires, I say in your outline, a bloody death. It's not just any death, but a bloody death. And as you read through your Bible, you may be offended at how often you read of death and sacrifice and bloody sacrifice. And it is not pleasant. It is not pleasant for me to contemplate. It's not intended to be pleasant. It's intended to show us the seriousness and the blackness and the depth of sin. And so Adam and Eve, the first two of God's human creatures, they witnessed God slay an animal to make skins of covering for them. In the chapter after the entrance of sin into the human race, Genesis chapter 4, we have the first murder and the blood of Abel. 
And now human history begins to see the awful effects of sin, including blood. Blood that is shed because of the violence of people, but blood that is shed because, as we're going to see, the Bible tells us, the life of the creature is in the blood and God requires a costly payment, a bloody death for this ransom. The Old Testament sacrificial system was indeed a gory affair. During the thousand plus years of the old covenant, the old arrangement, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. Did you all hear that? Considering that each bull sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the old covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down through the Kidron Valley for the disposal, just for the disposal of blood. It was a sacrificial plumbing system. Now, I don't say that to be offensive. I say that to present to you what the Bible presents about the costliness of sin, the costliness of the forgiveness that our God offers it requires death, and it requires not just death, but it requires a bloody death. It's a reminder of how heinous our sin is. And that was true in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Jesus' bloody death is required for our forgiveness under the new arrangement, but there was this blood required over and over again in the Old Testament also. And to show you the contrast between the two, will you just hold your finger here in Hebrews 9, and turn back to the beginning of your Bible. The second book of your Bible, Exodus. Genesis, Exodus. And Exodus chapter 24. And I want to read for you the 16 verses that comprise that chapter. Where the old covenant, the old arrangement was initiated. And it too was initiated with death and with blood. Exodus 24. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. And the people may not come up with him. Now let me just stop there for a moment. Do you all see the contrast between the old arrangement and the new arrangement? The title of this series in Hebrews is Draw near to God. And the reason it's titled Draw Near to God is because in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, we are bidden under the new arrangement that Jesus initiated to draw near to God. All of his people can now draw near to God because of what Jesus has done. But under the old arrangement, the people had to stay afar off. Only Moses could approach the Lord. Verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. <laughs> what a New Year's resolution that is. Yes, we'll, we'll obey everything. And of course, we all know it went south. Even while Moses was on the mountain, the people are sinning against the Lord. The very people who said, we'll do it all. 
Everything the Lord has said we will do, verse 4, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and he put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, he read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, went up and saw the God of Israel. Now, when it says they saw the God of Israel, you know there are other places in the Bible that says no one can see God and live. And so we don't know. The text doesn't tell us what they saw of God. They must have seen just some form of God that enabled them to do so and live, but they could not have seen God in his full essence because that produces immediate death. They saw, verse 10, the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, verse 12, Come up to me on the mountain, stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua at his side, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are here with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up that mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible tells us that when he emerged from that meeting with God, his face shone as if it were on fire. And the people were unable to look on Moses because of the residual glory that he carried on his face in that encounter with God. Now, our writer in the book of Hebrews refers to that very passage, and that's why I had you go to Exodus 24. In Hebrews chapter 9, notice what verse 18 says. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Do you remember that we read in Exodus 24 that they killed bulls and goats and Moses sprinkled the blood on the altar and on the people as well? In verse 19 now, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, and we saw that in Exodus 24, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. Forgiveness is costly. It requires death, and it requires bloody death. And the reason is because the Old Testament principle that runs throughout your Bible is this, found in Leviticus chapter 17. The life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. My friends, as we conclude our look at the complete superior sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, 
the costly sacrifice of bloody death on our behalf because of our sin. There are just a few questions that might come to mind that I'd like to deal with as we end our time together. One of them is this. This Jesus who came and died now, as the one who initiates the will, raises the question, did God die? Did God die because he wanted to, in his last will and testament, leave his possessions to someone else? I mean, isn't that what you do in a will? You leave your possessions to another. And indeed, that's what Jesus has done. And the closest answer we get to that is found in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. If you'll just take a look at that. Hebrews 2, 14. Here's what the Bible says. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. In other words, no, on the one hand, God as God cannot die. He is immortal. And the Bible tells us as much. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But on the other hand, yes, he wills to experience death so as to destroy death and deliver those who are enslaved to it. So the question is, how can the immortal experience death? Because he takes on the flesh and blood human nature as his own, and in that nature, he experiences death. And so as God, he cannot die. But the answer is yes, in the sense that God wrote a last will and testament because he intended to experience death in the death of his son through the human nature that he took on at what we celebrate as Christmas. And so let that, friends, establish your faith and deepen your security and assurance in God because he wrote this will, now hear this, in eternity past. He wrote a will in eternity past. From all eternity, God willed to pass on his eternal inheritance to you by grace. And here's what the Bible says. God has saved us. And he has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God determined. To set forth this will before you were ever born, before any of those under the first covenant were ever born. The death of Christ is over and done. The death that's required for heirs to come into their possession. And there does not need to be another death. Here's a second question that comes up. A will requires an executor. Who is the executor then? Of God's will. I mean, a will usually specifies who the executor is going to be, and it's never the dead person who executes his own will. And the answer is that this anticipates the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the installation of Jesus at the Father's right hand, as we saw last week as our high priest, of all the good things to come is the way that he is both the initiator and the executor of his own will. 
When verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, the last will and testament, it means that not only that he is the one whose death releases all the inheritance of God for us, but also that once that inheritance is released, Jesus is the one, hear this, who makes sure we get it. He is the one who dies. Because of his resurrection, he is the one who executes the terms of the will as well. And you see that in chapter 13. It's the last passage I'll have you turn to, honest. But look at Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And by the way, that's the new covenant promise that we'll be able to do now what is commanded as opposed to the old arrangement. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The new arrangement, the new covenant inheritance of God's inner work in our lives is given to us, and it says, through Jesus Christ. He's the executor of the will. And so, friends, let that calm your troubled hearts to know that God prepared this will in eternity past, and God himself is the executor of the will through which you receive your inheritance. Here's the final question that comes up then. Who are the heirs of God's last will and testament? Who are those who receive the benefits of this will that Jesus has bequeathed? To whom has he bequeathed it? Verse 15 tells us who. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 tells us it is those who are called. And Jesus has the names written in the will. He knows exactly who will respond to the call. And the question is an urgent one for every one of us here. Are you an heir? Are you listed in God's last will and testament? Does he bequeath to you this eternal inheritance? Is the inheritance of God left to an uncertain, indefinite group, or does he have in view particular people that he loves his children and to whom he, li- to whom he leaves this inheritance? And it is to those whom are co- who are called. The Bible speaks of the general call of the gospel that goes out every time the good news of Jesus is preached, as it is today. That good news is set against the backdrop of the bad news. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every last one of us. But thanks be to God, the good news is Jesus Christ has paid in full your sin, past, present, and future. And he offers that sacrifice to you. And you are being called now to respond to the sacrifice of Jesus made on your behalf. And who receives those benefits? Who are bequeathed in his will? It is those who respond, and only those who respond to his call. God, in his grace, asks you to respond to the sacrifice that Jesus has made on your behalf. What do I do? Realize that you 
as I put Jesus on the cross because of our sin. Realize that you are a sinner. Recognize that Jesus has made the full payment for your sin. Repent then of your sin. Oh Lord, as I see the heinousness of my sin and the sacrifice, the costliness of my forgiveness, I don't want to pursue my sin. I am certainly weak and frail and I do sin, but I want to forsake it. I want to go your way, not my way. That's what repent means. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And you can do that as we bow before the Lord Jesus Christ in the sacredness of this moment. It's not a magical incantation. It's not a formula. This is just a sample prayer that you can bring from your heart to God to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that Jesus paid in full the price of your sin. You want to repent, to follow him with your life. Ask him to apply the infinite, costly death that he died on our behalf. Ask him to apply that now to you personally. The Bible says that he or she who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christian friend, friend who has come to Jesus, the person who has availed themselves of the sacrifice that Jesus has made, I ask you to do two things and then we'll bow together. The first is when we bow, thank God for the good news of the gospel. The inheritance, the internal, the eternal inheritance that we share together. But do a second thing. Think about the forgiveness that you've been given and therefore the forgiveness that you must give. You see, what forgiveness does is it absorbs the cost. Jesus in his death on the cross absorbed the full cost of our sin. And now I can forgive others. And now I am called by Jesus to forgive others. Because now I can absorb the hurt. I can take the insult. I don't have to get vengeance and repay evil for evil. Why? Because Jesus has absorbed all for me. He now gives me the power to absorb the relatively small slights and insults and sins that are committed against me. And that's why Jesus says, Matthew 5, 23, if you find yourself worshiping in the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother and then bring your gift. Let's commit to doing that as we bow before the Lord. Father, thank you for this time to look into the pages of your sacred word and to see there the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf once again in its full glory. We thank you for the Son of God who voluntarily came to earth, very God of very God, truly God, in all of his essence. But he joined humanity to what he had been for all eternity. And the God-man, the unique person, Jesus Christ, came to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. What the blood of bulls and goats could never take away. Jesus, in the infinite, perfect complete sacrifice of himself, took away our sin forever, past, present, and future. Oh, Lord, help us then to be people who live lives of extreme gratitude, not living for you so we can go to heaven, living for you because we're thankful that we are going to heaven, 
because we have an eternal inheritance. The executor of our will is none other than God himself. I pray, Lord, that you're moving upon the hearts of some who have never prior to this moment come to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. Perhaps for the first time, they're considering themselves in light of a holy God and the cost required because of our sin, and they're embracing the Savior who made that payment on their behalf. Oh, Lord, we pray that that's the case, and that you'll begin your work within them, a first step in a new direction of life, receiving Jesus as Savior and committing to him as Lord, to his glory we pray. Amen.